Hello and welcome to another episode of Daf Shui, Weekly Daf. Give me 40 minutes or so and I'll give you a Daf or so. We're into the month of Elul, the run-up to Rosh Hashanah, the high holidays, which is going to be like everything else in 2020, really different, really strange. Give yourself a chance to feel that. It's okay to feel that. It's very odd. And it seems like it's going to be a real Elul for the records. Elul, the time that we reflect and do tshuva. Last night, after police shot Jacob Blake seven times when he was unarmed in front of his kids, he was moving around his car and going into the vehicle. They shot him in the back seven times. Didn't kill him. So uh, people in Kenosha went out on the streets to protest another black man being shot by white cops, by police. And a 17-year-old white kid with an AR-15, drove to Kenosha from his house in Illinois and shot three protesters, killing two of them. We have a race problem. On top of that, we have a gun problem. We have a gun problem, which is a racist gun problem. Gun control usually follows black Americans buying guns, like in California under Reagan. I'm a pacifist. I'm against private gun ownership. We have 300 million guns in private hands. The roosters are coming home. 400 years of racism. The roosters are coming home. Seems like they're all coming home in 2020. If there was ever a time for us to do tshuva collectively, this is the time. This is the time. Focus, folks. Okay. So let's go into the refuge of the Beit Midrash for a while. Perhaps draw strength. Have a different frame for our conversation. We're 37B, Baba Batra, in the layout of the pages that was produced by the brothers and widow Rome in Vilna low these 150 years ago. And there will be a link to the page on the podcast page. We're going to start and we're going to finish the Gemara on the first Mishnah. We're going to get to the second Mishnah. We're going to start the second Mishnah. We should have L'chaim, it's kind of a time to celebrate, though. It's not a very celebratory time. Here we go. All right. Amri Nahardai. We're like three lines from the bottom. Two lines from the bottom. Second line from the bottom. Amri Nahardai. The Nehardians said, we saw the the Nehardians a couple of pages back talking about whether or not if one steals from the masses, from the public, whether one could return or not, whether one could do tshuva for it or not. Something to think about. But here the Nardians say the following: One who sells a dekel, a palm tree, to his friend lechavre. So he buys from kanile. So when he buys it, he buys from the roots until the tahom, until the un, until the middle of the earth, right? all the way down. Everything is his. That's what the Nardians say. Matkif la Rava. Rava challenges this. Why doesn't he just say to him, I sold, what I actually sold you was saffron crocus. Croci. In other words, saffron bulbs. That's what I sold you. I sold you the ability to plant them. So a Take your saffron and get out of here. In other words, your saffron is not, doesn't go all the way down. There are no roots that go all the way down to the the depths, the deep depths. 
just pick up your saffron and get out of here. Ella Amarava Bava Mahmatana. So Rabbi said, no. What we're talking about is is when does a person get the ground from the roots and down to Middle Earth? It is only when he comes with a claim saying, here, you sold it to me. Here is the contract. Here's the deed for it. And I've had it for three years. In that case, he then owns the land all the way down. And if he actually did just sell him saffron bulbs, then what does he, uh, then what does he do? In other words, the owner of the land. So Ruvain sells Shifra saffron bulbs, saffron crocuses. So they, they are bulbs. I watch a bunch of YouTube videos because that's the commitment I have to you, my listeners. I watch a bunch of YouTube videos to see how actually saffron is planted and they're bulbs and planted in the ground. And so they're very easy to get rid of, to, to pull out afterwards. But if they were actually saffron bulbs, what is the owner of the land supposed to do? Because to prevent Shifra from coming back next year and planting more bulbs, right? Where the first ones were. So the owner of the land has to constantly protest and say, this is my land and I didn't sell it to you. I only allowed you to plant the saffron bulbs there. Because if you're gonna not if you're not gonna say this, and the next few lines are gonna be familiar to us from a couple of back. If you don't say this, Hani the what about this? Mashkanta de Sura, a Suran deed of, of security in which the following is written. When this number of years finishes, take the land goes back to you or take the land without any money, right? Remember that a Suran document of surety is when Shifra loans money to Ruvain and Ruvain as a surety, gives Shifra the deed to his land to benefit from the fruit of the the produce of that land for, let's say, three years or four years, whatever amount of time it takes, which is equivalent to the amount of money that he borrowed from Shifra. At the end of that time, at the end of that time, the 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 land goes back from Shifra to Ruvain without any money, and no money has to pass hands. But what happens if Shifra then hides the Shtarmashkanta, the deed of surety? The Amar Lekuchahi Biadi and says that no, I bought it. Because look, I've been using it for three years. Hachinami de he would also be believed. Would the rabbis actually ordain something that would cause a loss? But rather, no, every year, Ruvain has to come and say, you know what, Shifra, it's not your land. You know that it's not your land. I just, we just have this certain surety deeds in order that I could borrow land money from you. So the same thing here, if he only sold, didn't sell the land, but only allowed the land for the planting of the saffron, so in that case, the owner of the land has to constantly go back and say, it is my land, and I only sold it to you for that purpose. Okay, and with this, we finish this whole long set of sugyot, casebooks, and commentary on the first Mishnah, on the Mishnah dealing with how do you have a chazakah on land? How do you take possession of land? And the uh, 
ultimately the basic problem, which we really didn't answer. We come to, came to a number of different answers. Is What does it mean to own land? What does it mean to own land? How does one take possession of land? Right? And that's a question which is, is answered in different places in different parts of the globe and brings to many contestations and conflicts in cultures that don't have a notion of, of possessing land or who possess other people's land, like uh, in the United States, in North America, when the Europeans came in and wrote laws so that the Native Americans can no longer own land that had been the, theirs, but that they had different notions of possessing than the Europeans did. And, of course, the whole notion of indigeneity and the notion of diaspora culture. How does one rectify the notion of indigeneity? In other words, being native to a place and laying a claim on that land from the weight of having, quote-unquote, always been there, to diaspora culture, diasporic people, whose place is a place for now. And there is some other place for which there is an indigeneity, a mythic or not, though all indigeneity is in some way mythic, in some way legendary. So we haven't answered those big questions yet. We haven't, I don't know if we will answer those big questions, but we've answered the fact, we've, we have seen in what ways the contestation over land and the ways that the law looks at the contestation over land, whether it's with having it for three years and the difference between owning the land or owning the produce of the land, whether it's benefiting from the produce, the usufruct. And now we're going to move on to the second Mishnah and we're going to, we're going to see that they're actually the whole, the claim to having a chazakah is a claim itself, which is contentious. Not surprisingly, but it's also a claim which is not as clear-eyed, as clear, as straight ahead as one might have thought it would be. Though the truth is, this is Gemara, so one would never have thought that anything was clear-eyed or straightforward. So here we go. If it would be straightforward, then, uh, you know, we wouldn't be here every week. Or maybe we would. Who knows? Okay. There are three provinces for the sake of claiming, making a chazaka claim, making a claim of assumption of ownership. There are three different provinces, Yehuda, Ve'eber Galil, Judea, Transjordan, and the Galilee, right? the other side of the Jordan, and the Galilee. In other words, the east bank of the Jordan. These three are different provinces for the sake of making a claim of ownership. He lived, in, if a person lived in Judah, and he made a claim on property in the Galil, in the Galilee, in the north of Israel. If he lived in, in the north of Israel, and he made a claim on property in Judah. It's not considered a chazakah. It's not considered a claim unless he was in the same Medina, the same state province as the person he's making a claim against. So the question is, it's not clear. This becomes less clear in the commentaries, the relationship between Medina and Eretz. Eretz is definitely a province. It says, Judah, Eber, Yerdein, Galil. Medina, is that mean actually being in the same city, or is Medina here a just a synonym for Eretz? One could make the latter claim as a synonym for Eretz because the beginning of the sentence is he was in Judah and he made the claim in Galil, and Galil made the claim in Judah. But one could make it say that this actually what's being added on 
Here is that a more stringent claim. So it's not considered a chazaka until he's in the same place, the same smaller place, but we don't know. Okay, so shalosha, so we said this, there are these three places, and the chazaka is not considered a chazaka until he's in the same place, together with the person who's now on the land, right? So you have the marakama, the first, the original owner, and then you have some person who's on the land, right? And so if a person has land in Judah, and he was living in the Galilee, so he can't make a claim a claim of Chazaka on that land in Judah, right? It's not considered Chazaka until he is in that same place. So that means that he's in that same place. And then people see that he's on the land. And if somebody wants to claim against him, they say, look, no, that's not your land. That's my land. You can't make that long distance claim of ownership. Amar of Yehuda, Lo amru shanim el Rabbi Yehuda says it's only the the claim of the 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 number three years which we had in the first Mishnah, right? batim, etc. is three years is only so that you can be in Spain. In other words, the owner land could be in Spain, and somebody else could sit on their land for a year, and then people go and tell the original owner takes them a year to get there, and then he has a year to get back home. Remember that. If that sounds, if that structure of year, year, year sounds familiar, it's because that's all going back to 3B, 4A, where we had the story of Herod destroying the temple and and rebuilding the temple. So he was uh, given advice by the rabbi, by the sage, said to him, after Herod had killed all the sages, um, Herod wanted to know what he could do to make up for it. So uh, the advice that was given to him was that he should rebuild the temple because the temple is called light, right? And so he should rebuild. So Herod said, well, I can't rebuild the temple in the Romans don't want me to. He says, well, here's, here's the idea. Send a messenger to Rome and ask if you can rebuild the temple. It'll take him a year to get there. He'll sit around a year and wait for an audience. It'll take him a year to get back. And when he get back, he'll tell you that you can't. But by that time, you will already have knocked down the temple and rebuilt it. And that's exactly what happened. And Herod manages to rebuild the temple and Shalom al-Yisrael. Though, obviously, that's not what happened in, in reality, because in reality, Herod was a, a very faithful servant to Rome. And But that's neither here nor there. But here we have, again, this three-year period. Now, the other question is, and the major, the actual major question is, aside from tag back to the beginning of the Gemara, is what's the relationship here between the end of this Mishnah, Amr of Yehuda, and the, and the Tanakhama, the first opinion in the Mishnah? At first glance, it might seem that Rav Yehuda is coming to minimize the first part of the Mishnah, right? That it's they only say because that's the 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 rhetoric is three years that they said is only if he's in Spain, right? So that if he was in Spain and he somebody else came and made a chazaka for years, then then somebody notified the original owner and then he has a year to come back and tell him no. But what is that actually? Um, minimizing is that minimizing this fact of the three lands for Chazaka? Um, that seems to be different. Now, if we look at the so, what's interesting here is that if we look at the Tosefta, the Tosefta has a slightly different take on Rabbi Yehuda, slightly different version of Rabbi Yehuda. Amar Rabbi Yehuda lo amru shalosh shanim ela Yehuda said that. Three years, that was said, was only so that if he was in Spain. 
But if he was in the same Medina as him, then even one year is already a Chazaka. Right? So that statement in Toseftas seems to be directly commenting on the Mishnah. Right? Directly commenting on the Mishnah saying that Chazgat Abadim is three years. And then Rabbi Yehuda is saying that three years is only if he was in Spain. But if he was in the same state, the same place, once even one year is considered is considered a Chazaka. So the Tosefta has the three years only for Spain, and actually you only need a year. The Mishnah has the three years, the maximalist version for everybody, and the reason is in case somebody is in Spain. So that's the maximalist, in case somebody is in Spain. So how do we get to the current Mishnah? So there is a theory, and this I'm taking from Moshe Benowitz, there is a theory that his theory is that it was actually Rebbe who put the Mishnah together. He gets this from, from an interesting reading of the Mishnah through the Tosefta and Yerushalmi, right? So the Tosefta, the Mishnah says, right, there are three three places for Chazaka, which means that, right, to the three provinces for Chazaka, Yehuda and Galil and Eber Yardain, what that does is it minimizes, the only time you can have a Chazaka is if you are with somebody in the same place. That's the only time you can have a Chazaka, right? And if we look at the Yerushalmi, and then we'll see it later on in the Bavli, the immediate comment on this is Rav, who says, Bishat Cherum Shanu. Rav says that the Mishnah was talking about a time of oppression or a time of exigency. And the question of what, what Cherum is is an interesting question because of the fact that it's a, a hapax it's a unique word here. And it's not clear exactly what it means. It means something like distress, mitsuka, right? And so Rav says that we're only, that we're only talking about a time of distress. And then Rob goes on to say in the Yerushami, Ein chazaka levoreach velo me'eretz l'eretz. Right, we get to the Boreach and Amud Bet. But lo me'eretz l'eretz. There is no chazaka from one Eretz to another, like from Yehuda to Eber Yarden, from Eber Yarden to Galil. And that's what the Mishnah says. Eina chazaka achat. So the Tanakhama is really narrowing what Chazaka could be. Chazaka means you have to be in the same place. And Rav clarifies that that's because of this time of distress. Now, what is the time of distress? Right? And that's something that, that a number of different people have asked about, right? What does it mean, this time of distress? People assume, a lot of people assume that distress means war, but as Moshe Benavitz points out, there was no war then. It was actually the three places, Yudah, Ebrayadeh, and Galia, were all under the same rule. They were all under, in in the Roman Empire, there was no war between them, right? Because that's later on, the Gemara says, what, have the Shairot Mitziot, if the caravans are, are there. So that seems to be, people, that, that seems to bring up a picture of war. But actually, it wasn't a war, but rather, and here, this is interesting, it's like make, taking a, a very specific historical moment, and that moment is the moment Rebbe, right, if we go with Benowitz to say that Rabbi Huda Nasi was the one who wrote the first anonymous voice of the Mishnah, and Rav, Rebbe's student, took that up and explained it. So now we're in a very specific place, which is around the end of the second century, beginning of the third century. And what in the in one ninety so here's the interesting thing historically, in one ninety-three, for three months, the Emperor Pertinax was the emperor, and what he did was that he confiscated all land 
in the empire that wasn't being worked, even land that belonged to local rulers, and gave it to anybody who wanted to work it. So any land that was lying fallow, anybody could come and say, you know what, I'm going to work that land. And that's a good way to generate taxes for the empire. It's a good way to generate food for the empire. But it brought a lot of churn, right? In other words, if you go away from your, if you go away from your house for a minute, you come back, somebody else is working your land, and Pertinax is, or his, you know, tax collector is saying, no, sorry, it belongs to him. Um, the land agency just said it's okay because you aren't working it. So that is the Shat Cherum, meaning that that is the time of distress because someone can go away. So therefore, Rob said that the only time you can have a Chazakah is if you are there in the same state, because if you're away, then you don't know what's going to go on with your land. And that's the Shat Cherum. And that's what Rab is saying in Chazakah, and uh, that Rab and Shat Cherum And later on, we'll see that the Babli says that from Yudan Galil is always Kishat Cherum, right? It's always like a time of distress. So that's kind of interesting. It puts it in a very specific historical moment. And this historical moment generates a halacha in, about how to deal with land. We have another one of these in Gittin, in the fifth parak, in the fifth chapter, where we talk about Sikri Kon, land that was taken by the government or by highwaymen, you know, which was stolen, and then you bought it from, then somebody bought it from the Sikri Kon, whether then the party who from whom the land was stolen by the Sikri Kon could then sue for ownership of the land again. Again, people trying to figure out when there also the Gemara talks about certain historical markers from the time of the war and on before the time of the war. And again, uh, it seems that history infused the halacha, just like history uh, infused and formed the halacha and impacted the halacha here, perhaps if uh, this theory is right, which uh, sounds cool. Um, it also helps make sense of this Mishnah in which we have the second part of the Mishnah, Rabbi Yehuda's statement is then different than the Tosefta statement, right? Because Rabbi Yehuda's statement is saying that right? That is different than Rabbi Yehuda in the Tosefta saying that Aspamia is just a maximalist case, but normally Chazaka is only for, for one year. Have you ever come home from a long day of hectoring people on their way to the temple and thought to yourself, where do I go from here? I tell people that God doesn't want their sacrifices. I tell people that Assyria is going to crush their dreams and drag them off into slavery. But am I making a difference? Am I being heard? Do you ever look enviously at the big guys who made it into the book, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and think, what do they have that I don't? Well, sure, they write better than me. Their righteous rage is also touched by a sublime poetry. What about Zechariah? Nobody understands what he's saying, and there he is, one of the 12. What's that all about? Well, we're here to tell you that it's not your fault. Baboy Ben Pakui, Prophet's Representation, will get you where you know that God wants you to be. We are a Prophets Only, Canon Inclusion, Representation Agency. Make sure your righteous rage gets the audience it deserves with BBPR. And only for listeners of this podcast, if you contact us now, you'll get a free consultation. Call us at 1-800-PROFITS-REP. That's 1-800-PROFITS-REP. Tell them Daf Shui sent you. Okay. My Kasabar Tanakama. So this is the fact that, that this first, the Tanakama, the statement of Tanakama, it's kind of out of place. It seems to be in between two statements. It's also noted by the Stam. 
So the Stam asks, my Kasabar Tanakama, what is the Tanakama thinking? If the theory of the Tanakama, of the first uh, anonymous opinion, is that a protest not in front of the person who's sitting on the land is considered a protest, then what difference does it make? Then even Yehuda and Galil is uh, also considered a protest. Why are you not? Why, what difference does it make if you're in Yehuda? And your land is in Galil, or you're in Galil and your land is in Yehuda. You could still make a protest, right? Because Mecha'ah Shalobafanav is a Mecha'ah. Ikasabar Mecha'ah Shalobafanav Lohabi Mecha'ah. If your theory, if, if you think, the, if the theory is that protest not in front of the person you're protesting against is not a protest, it doesn't count. I feel Yudavidanamilo. So then, even if you're in the same province, but you're not like, standing in front of him, so it's also not considered a, a protest. So that's also not. So what's the Tanakhama saying? Amar le Abba Bar Mamal Amar Rav. So Abba Bar Mamal said in the name of Rav, Le'olam kesavar In truth, Rav says, a protest not in front of him is a protest. Now, we have to remember this because it's going to come back. This is Rav's statement. The Gemara is going to hang this around Rav's neck. A, a protest not in front of the person is, is considered a protest. And our Mishnah is talking about a time of distress. So why does it talk about Yehuda v'Galil? Because it teaches us that, in general, going from Yehuda to the Galil or from Galil to Yehuda is as if a time of distress, right? So therefore, when Rav says, so Rav says, it's not a problem. You can, you're allowed to, you could protest not in front of somebody and it's considered a protest. But our Mishnah, which says that it's not, that it doesn't help, that Chazaka only works when you're like almost mama standing on top of the guy, is because of a time of distress. And, and, Rav is teaching us, or Rebbe, uh, Rabbi Nasi is teaching us in the Mishnah that from Yehuda and Galil is like a Shat Cherum, is always like a Shat Cherum, a time of distress. And this backs up uh, uh, Benavitz's theory that actually Rav was teaching us that it is a Shat Cherum, that it is a time of distress. As uh, in the in the in the Yerushalmi, Rav's statement is simply straightforward: Rav Amar b'Shat Cherum Shanu. And uh, that uh, our mission is talking about Shat Cherum. And this whole expansion of the Stam is just within that framework that Rav says it is a time of distress. Okay, Amar of Yehuda, Amar Rav. Rav Yehuda, one of the students of Rav, said in the name Rav, Ein machzikin boreach. You can't make a claim of ownership on the property of a fugitive. So, what does a fugitive mean? So it could be one of two things. It could be either a fugitive from money or taxes. Charles Lieberman says in his commentary on the Tosefta that one of the problems is that people were, you know, the taxes were being raised. It's a time of turmoil. So people ran away in order to not have to pay taxes. So that's one kind of fugitive or kind of oppression that some that the, you know, somebody's trying to kill you or that you killed somebody and you're running away from the Goel Adam, from the family member who's, who's, who's lighting after you. Okay. 
So So when Rav Yehuda says, when I said this halacha, that Rav said that you can't make a claim of ownership on the property of a fugitive, I said this in front of Shmuel. Shmuel said, does he have to stand in front of him and protest? And what did Rav teach us? We're going to say that Rav said a protest not in front of him is not a protest. See, I told you to remember that. Did not Rav say that a protest not in front of a person is considered a protest? Rav, Rav there was just explaining the the reasoning of our Mishnah. Of the Mishnah, the Tana of our Mishnah, Vilei la Svirlei. So Rav actually didn't believe that. So therefore, Rav could say, "Ein Machsikim Minuchsei Boreach," that you can't make a claim on the property of a fugitive because the fugitive can't make a uh, protest, can't protest somebody else is making a claim on his property because he's not there. And Mechash Lo Befanav Lo Havi Mechah. A protest not in front of him is not considered a protest. No, but we have a whole other way of, 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 of remembering this narrative. Amar of Yehuda, Amar Av. Rav Yehuda, student of Rav, You can make a claim of ownership on the property of a refugee, of a refugee, of a fugitive. Ki Amrita Kamal Shmuel. When I said, Rav Yehuda says, when I said this in front of Shmuel, Amar he said to me, Pshita, of course. Does he have to stand in front of him and protest in front of him? And then Rav would have to have said, A protest not in front of him is a protest. And Rav already said this once already. So in other words, what you're saying is, is, is so redundant that you shouldn't even have to say it. And Rav definitely wouldn't have said it. No, but this is what Rav was teaching. That even if you made the protest in front of two people who couldn't have told him, they're not able to tell him it's still considered a protest. So what does that mean? What's the svara there? What's the theory there? So it could be either of two things. One is that the whole point of making a protest is not, as we might have thought earlier, that when I protest, when I come and say, you know what, you're sitting on my land, that's telling you, guard your contract. Guard your contract because I'm going to come back and, and somebody's going to, I'm going to come back and make a claim on that land and say, it's my land. So you're going to, because of that, you're going to keep your contract in a safe place. Or there's another way of thinking. If I make a claim, if I protest against the fact that somebody's sitting on my land, all I'm doing is registering in real time that that land is mine. So that eventually, if I get back to that land, I could say, you know what, Yankel and Shmero know that I said to them four years ago, this is my land. Right. So we apparently we're going with the latter, right? Because it says, even if he protested in front of two people who couldn't have told the other guy, it's still considered a protest. This is the way Shmuel was explained to me. If you 
protested, if, if a person protested in front of two people, who can tell the person who's now sitting on the land, it's considered a protest. But if you protested in front of two people who couldn't tell the person, it's not a macha, that's Shmuel. The Rav, and what does Rav say? Chavra, Chavra Itle. The Chavra, the Chavra, Chavra, the Chavra, Chavra Itle. And Rav holds on the commutative principle of Jewish transmission of news. Your friend has a friend. And your friend's friend has another friend. In other words, eventually it's going to get back there. Even if Yankel and Shmerl have never left their town, they see people coming through town and they say, oh, you know what, that land below that uh, land belongs to, 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 to Aryeh, and then they eventually see somebody else, and then somebody else sees somebody else, and it finally gets back to Rufus, who's who's being nasty and sitting on the land, and they say to Rufus, you know, Aryeh, uh, who's sitting in Yenemsveld, is saying it's, that's your that's his land. Amarava, Rava says, Hilchita ein machzikin Rabbi says that you can't make a claim of ownership on the property of a fugitive and a protest not in front of the person is considered a protest. So why does he have to say both of them? So why does he need both of them? Because one, we're talking about a fugitive because of money. Like he's not, He hasn't paid his taxes or he's running away from debts. And this one is talking about a fugitive from oppression. So, in the case of a fugitive from money, so then, you know, he doesn't care if somebody finds out where he is, as long as he's away from the from the general, from the government, who's going to try to collect his taxes. So, therefore, he uh, has time to sit down and make a machah and say, you know, I am in Yonkers. But if he's running away because either the regime wants to kill him, or because he killed somebody, he's running away. He doesn't want anybody to know where he is. So in that case, we say, under no circumstances can you make a claim on the property of a fugitive. And we go back to, and this goes back to the other machloket that uh, Robin Shmuel, we saw in the Yerushalmi, Rob says there's no chazaka. You can't. There's no. You can't make a claim on property of a fugitive, and you can't make a claim from one country to another. And that concerns the earlier conversation in the Yishalmi, or the earlier conversation in Yishalmi concerns that topic. And Shmuel says there is one can make a claim on property of a, of a fugitive. And also there's a chazaka from one land to to another. Rava is in the line with Rav, says, you can't make a you can't make a claim of ownership on the property of one of a fugitive. And in the same line, you cannot protest, which is not in front of him, is not considered a protest. Okay. So the Rambam, when he talks about Borei, he says, the Rambam codifies it in the following way. Somebody, a fugitive who was running away, and the Ramam here makes this explicit, was running away because of his his life was in danger, such that if a king was desiring to kill him, right, for whatever reason, the king wanted to kill him, whether he did something or didn't do anything. So in that case, one cannot claim his property, even if uh, somebody sat on his property and benefited from the produce for many years, 
it's not considered is is benefiting from the property is benefiting from the from the is eating the fruit is not considered a proof of chazaka because he is a fugitive. This feeds into lots of content, lots of kind of twentieth century cases. Talks about reclamation of property in Germany and Poland. Talks about reclamation of property in Palestine. If the point is sakanat nafashot, people running away because they're in fear of their lives, then then the property is still up for grabs, right? The property is still up for grabs, and somebody else can't make a claim on it. Okay, so now we're off to a whole nother conversation, and we're going to continue with that conversation next week. Hopefully, you all will join us. It's been such a pleasure being with you these past 40 minutes. I want to thank, as always, the Dafshui team, my Chavruta, Charlotte Van Robert, amazing producer, Ellie Unger-Sargon, and Ellie's podcast, Four Cubits. There was a new episode just dropped, and this one is on anger. Ellie and Jeff Helmreich discuss the philosophical aspects of anger. Perfect for Elul. And finally, of course, thanks always to the comms team, Shachar Cohen Hodos, who created the beautiful logo. Thank you all for coming. If you liked the past 40 minutes or so, please give me a rating um, on the Apple Podcast page. Please give me a good rating. It'll make me feel better. But in any event, I'd love to hear from y'all. And uh, as homework, please tell a friend about this and bring them to learn in the Beit Midrash in the closet with us next week so that the sound of Torah will resound all through the land. Stay safe. Stay healthy. Think good thoughts. Be well.